0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And today I'm stepping back in front of the microphone. I have a different role in the organization now, but I'm stepping back in front of the microphone to talk uh, with Kelly McFall. Kelly is a longtime and excellent host on the network. He hosts New Books in Genocide Studies. And today we'll be talking about his book, which is really about teaching history called The Needs of Others. Human Rights, International Organizations, and Intervention in Rwanda, 1994. And it's published by Norton, no less. So Kelly, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself just to begin? Sure.
1: Um, I teach at a small Catholic school in Wichita, Kansas called Newman University. Um, I got there uh, by way of uh, large public universities. I attended Michigan State as an undergrad for the um, sound and excellent reason that uh, Magic Johnson attended there and to a sixteen-year-old that seemed important.
0: It's important.
1: Um, I then went to get my MA and PhD in military history at Ohio State, uh, or the Ohio State, I suppose I should say the um,
0: premier program in military history in indeed. the United States. Um, I should
1: add. Yeah, it, it was an excellent experience. Um, and I then took a one-year job at Wichita State um, as a sabbatical replacement. And uh, as academic careers often go, um, there was a small school an hour north of there called Bethany College that um, that had a job opening. And um, the right people knew the right people. And I got an interview and in the job. And I discovered that while I had gotten a great education at Michigan State and Ohio State, I really fell in love with small uh, liberal arts schools where I could get to know my students on a personal level and, and where they could um, challenge me to learn new things in ways that I didn't often get at a big public institution. That's um, how I ended up becoming interested in the history of mass violence. Um, some of my students, after teaching, having taken a Holocaust class from me, asked me to do another independent study class on on genocide. And um, that was, I think, 11 years ago. And that has become one of my primary interests. Um, it's also, also a school that uh, has a, uh, both Bethany College and Newman, where I now teach, um, are both schools where probably a third to 40% of the students participate in sports in one way or another. And so that led me to an interest in sports history, which is another one of my interests. Um, so, uh, and, and, and teaching at a small college is, um, I have found particularly rewarding because of the emphasis on teaching. Uh, I enjoy research. I, I think it's uh, incredibly important, but my, my joy comes from teaching and helping students understand the past and how the past impacts the present. And being at a small school has let me explore that and, and led to my interest in reacting to the past.
0: Great. Well, we'll talk about it in a second. Uh, the uh, one thing I should add for the listeners, and they may know this if they heard any of my prior interviews, because I always stick it in. Hmm. I'm actually from Wichita. Mm, so I yeah. know all these places really well. I grew up there. So I know Bethany and Newman, and I grew up a shockers fan, the Wichita mm-hmm. State Shockers. Yes. Uh, and I was a big basketball fan back in the day. So yeah, Wichita's a place close to my heart. I don't know if I have any relatives. I don't think I have any relatives there anymore, but uh, I know that we have family reunions in Kansas, the Poe mm-hmm. family does, so I may be going to one this summer. I'm not sure. So let's talk a little about reacting to the past. Uh, can you explain in brief what it is and how it came to be as mm-hmm. a pedagogical project?
1: <laughs> Excuse me. So reacting to the past uh, originated about 20 years ago. Um at Barnard College, uh, which is, I think technically it is a sister institution of Columbia, but I may have the the technical language wrong. Um, uh, In a classroom uh, taught by Mark Carnes, who teaches American history, he's uh, probably familiar to many people who do American history, he's written a number of books. Uh, And as an effort to uh, improve our ability to engage students in the past, And what it is, is a series of what we call games, uh, and we can talk about terminology in a minute if you'd like, but uh, games in which students are uh, embedded or emplaced in a moment in the past, uh, a moment in which there is a society uh, perhaps in crisis, perhaps simply engaged in a great debate about an important value or an important um, decision that it has to make. Uh, and so these students are, are given a role in that debate uh, and asked then to um, to make decisions about where that society should go. Um, So, for example, students might be given roles in the National Assembly or as citizens of Paris in 1791 when the uh, French are trying to figure out where the revolution should go. Or they might be given uh, roles in uh, Athens immediately after the Athenian defeat by the Spartans and asked to figure out what Athens should be now that it has lost a war. Um, Or those are both high politics games. It might be that they are in Greenwich Village uh, in a coffee shop or a bar trying to figure out what um, what the role of women and unions and ordinary people should be in this time of change. Uh, And so so it's a way of engaging students in great questions and great texts, uh, a way in which instructors step back. It does not mean that instructors don't do anything, um, but instructors step back. And students take over the the classroom and drive these debates forward.
0: So I have a lot to say about this, obviously. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit before the interview. And and one is that I I really appreciate this approach to teaching primarily uh, because I think lecturing is not a good way to teach. Mm -hmm. And as I said in the pre-interview, I gave up lecturing, um, I don't know, it was about 15 years ago back when I was still a professor. I just said, look, this is to me... for all I can tell, this is a waste of time. Most people are not paying attention. Maybe it was the way I lectured. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a pretty good lecturer, and it just seemed to me a bad way to convey the information and to get people to think historically. So I taped my lectures, and then I, I started to do other things with the valuable class time because that in-person time is valuable. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you ever worked in a corporation, you know how a valuable face time is. That's like, yeah, not something to be wasted. And I felt it was being wasted. But I also like what, what, the, the kind of gamification of these things. Cause I grew mm-hmm. up as someone who I played a lot of board games and they were historical board games when I was young. And uh these really got me very interested in history. And in, in mm-hmm. this case, they were like Avalon Hill and strategy and tactics war games and they were complicated. And, but they did ask you to think historically Uh you didn't have, a uh, you just necessarily had to think historically because in order to be the character you wanted to be, you had to learn about the character there wasn't any other way to do it you can't just make stuff up so i think the approach is really terrific and the third thing i would say is this really models the way that you do research i yes. mean if, if you're thinking about why why caesar crossed the rubicon you got to become caesar for a second man and think about what caesar wanted to do and how he uh, you know what what his goals were what what kind of uh, opportunities he had what challenges he faced how it weighed it up in his mind you kind of have to Recreates that there's actually a technical word for this in in historical methodology It's called the verstehen method it's a German mm. word it just means understanding mm. um, but you you just do this all the time, like what I just finished a book myself and and I had to try to think about what the actors were doing because they didn't tell us, and so I had to recreate the situation in which they were acting and try to almost simulate in my mind what they were doing so I think it it really asked students to do the same thing and 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 it recapitulates historical research and historical mm-hmm. inference. I think I would call it that historical inference very, very nicely. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the current state of reacting to the past before we get into the mm-hmm. details of how it works? That is, how is it organized? How is it funded? Norton is on board to publish it. Are there resources available for people that want to use it? That kind of thing. So...
1: Uh, Reacting to the Past, as I said, started out as one person's brainstorm in one classroom. It has grown to to become institutionalized. Uh, We have a a board that uh, oversees um, an organization that uh, organizes conferences and works with uh, publishers and um, provides game designers and instructors with advice about how to uh, design games and use them effectively. Uh, we run a series of conferences across the country um, with the big one, the Annual Institute in New York in June. Uh, won't happen this year for obvious reasons, but every year we do that. We run one in Athens, Georgia in the January. And then across the country, there are ones in various uh, colleges and universities that um, are designed to help people who are not familiar with the pedagogy to understand it. And to help them make informed decisions about whether to use it in their classroom and help them learn how to be better teachers using uh, reacting to the past. And then we also use uh, a variety of um, I don't know modern media, modern communications technology. There's an active Facebook page with uh, which is probably the most active Facebook page I've ever seen in terms of offering advice to instructors and to people who are interested in using the materials. Um, there's a a, a a well-developed editorial process. Um, the uh, head of the editorial board that functions as part of this broader reacting consortium likes to talk about how this, there's more peer review for reacting to the past games than any traditional manuscript because <laughs> they go through uh, a, a, an editorial board through reacting, and then it also goes through the Norton process or um, alternatively, uh, there is a reacting consortium press through university of North Carolina that does publish some games as well. But in either case, you get three complete um, editorial blind editorial reviews um, for the, uh, the uh, scholarly quality of the, of the game, but also for playability. So, so it's still very wiki in nature. um, And it's a remarkably welcoming community of, of scholars. um, But it, has become institutionalized in order to give uh, either current or prospective users support and, and inspiration.
0: So, how would somebody start to become involved? How does someone get involved?
1: Yeah, Let's so get you get should not, out of not do what right? yeah, you right. should not do what I did. Okay. Um, and so my, uh, no, that's maybe not true. You can do what I did. What I did was uh, a, a friend of mine who taught at Wichita state knew that I was trying to get away from lecturing and sent me a link and said, you should do this. And about five minutes later, I put book orders in saying, well, I'm going to run the French game next <laughs> next semester. And this is how it goes, right? You send uh, an email to the bookstore and then you, you press send and you sit back and you say, oh shit, did I really do this? <laughs> um, Then I went to a conference, uh, and that was the right way to do it. So one way to begin this is to attend a conference um, and to experience it for yourself. Um, We don't often allow ourselves to be students as, as college faculty, and I think we miss a lot in terms of what works and what does not in teaching because we don't have the student experience. And so conferences allow you to play it from the perspective of a student uh, and get a sense of what their experience will be um, and about uh, the kind of dramatically different um, opportunities and values you will get from playing these as as compared to a lecture. Uh, And so that's, I think, the best way. Um, But it's not impossible. Uh, It is possible simply to... um, to run a game even without playing a conference um, simply by uh, going to Norton or going to Amazon and and finding a game that fits your course, right? One of the things we say is that uh, these games are ways of helping students understand the past and the present. Uh, And you play them for that reason. We call them games because that is an attractive title. Students like the idea that they will play games and therefore, we can fool them into actually learning an, a remarkable amount of material. Um, and so you pick a game that makes sense for your course objectives um,
0: and plunge in. So uh, just to continue on the logistical yeah. path here. Um so the first way you do it is probably to attend a conference or something like mm-hmm. that. You would contact Norton or somebody involved in the editorial board and then you attend a conference. Is that right?
1: So there's a web page um, okay. for the Reacting Consortium, uh, reacting.barnard.edu. But you can simply search Reacting to the Past and it will come up. Um, and it has, um, among them, it has a list of all of the published okay. and games and games and development. You can find upcoming events there. You can find resources for instructors Um, that is, to be honest, that's probably, if you step back, that's the first thing to do is to go to the website and explore. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But you would say to people, it's best not to do this alone. So it's best to attend a conference or something like this, or at least, at least, I don't know, lurk on the Mm. Facebook page or, or seek assistance before you just jump in and do it. So,
1: so let me, yeah, let me take a step back because uh, what you see on Amazon is the game book, um, which is what students will buy. What you don't see on Amazon, you'll get from Norton or on the Reacting to the Past website, is really extensive um, resources designed for the instructor. So, so I'll just the game we're going to talk about today has a, an instructor's guide that's about 120 pages long. It is not something you pick up and read from start to finish. Uh, at any one time, but it is kind of a step-by-step uh, handbook walking you through the game and what you need to do on any particular day and what problems might come up and how you would solve them, right? So so there are support materials that make it possible. But But yes, fundamentally, I agree. You should not do this alone. That does not necessarily mean you should be at a conference, although that's a great way to start, but it does mean Um, at least I would encourage listeners, if they want to try this, to get on the Facebook page um, and to ask questions because there's a remarkable amount of expertise out there, people who can help you think through how this game might be used and and how to solve any problems you have.
0: And do you have any idea how many instructors are using the Reacting to the Past technique? We know
1: there are... um, hundreds of colleges where instructors are using it. Mm-hmm. We know we have about 2,000 instructors on the Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know. There are probably other people out there who have never been in touch with us who use it, so we don't have an absolute number, but but hundreds of colleges and thousands of instructors.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how many games are there in the catalog? And we won't go through them. I just want to give people an idea sure. of how rich it is. Yeah.
1: So there are about... 15 or 17 published games, games where you students will get a game book from a publisher, Norton or reacting consortium press, often Norton um, that will look like a traditional book. The the thing about games is that they have to be uh, effective. They have to work and that takes play testing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so there's another set of probably 15 or 20 games at various points in development that have been used in classrooms across the country but are not have not gone through the kind of final editorial stage to get published. So mm-hmm. you can use 40 or so, probably.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So this leads naturally to my last question. Say you're a veteran and you've used this for a while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I say to myself, well, there's nothing in here about the Russian revolution, and I'd like mm-hmm. to do one on that. What should Go a or do then? You're like, Go for it. So, I was so afraid you'd say that. <laughs> what I
1: didn't say is that, so, as I said, we have a pretty rigorous uh, editorial process. That's intentional. Uh, we want to make sure that these games are, are of high quality enough that any student who encounters them, even if they encounter them at a, a low stage of development, is going to have an effective experience. Um, but there are dozens of games that people have kind of, started working on at one stage or another and um and used in their classroom and have not come up uh and and almost everyone who becomes interested in this pedagogy says huh there's not the game here that i'm really interested in maybe i should work on it Uh, and i say that's great the more opportunities we have for students um the better off our students will be. And as I say, we have a pretty sophisticated um, institutional base that can help people who are interested in writing a game to think about what that means and how to do that well.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure Norton is interested in expanding the number of games that are available, and I imagine Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who are history instructors that would be interested in getting involved. I know that if I still thought I would, I mean, it sounds absolutely fascinating and it's certainly better than lecturing. At least <laughs> I think it is. I don't know. I,
1: um, I agree entirely. But what I will also say is that writing a game is kind of a remarkable scholarly experience. Um, it is different than writing traditional manus- historical manuscripts.
0: Um, yeah, can you talk a little about that? Yeah, so
1: um, to write a game, first, first the the first thing to say is that a game is an is an interpretation. I mean, maybe not true for Clue or Sorry or something like that, but the kind of games we're talking about, there is a historical interpretation embedded in the game, right? The the roles that students will embody have victory conditions; they can win or they can lose, and Um, there is kind of an expected or rather the game leads students to make decisions that will align with historical reality. Now, that is not to say that the games have to turn out the way history did, but it does mean that if you've got your incentive rights for the character, the incentives right for the characters, they will make decisions that mirror what happened historically, um, these games are based on the idea that persuasion works, right? And so it is possible. Every game includes roles that are called indeterminants, people who can be persuaded. And if you can present a view of the world or a view of the future that um, persuades those indeterminants to act differently from the way they did in history, that's, that's perfectly valid. But from a writing perspective, Writing a game is really about expressing a historical interpretation in a new kind of setting. It means thinking through how all of these roles will intersect and interact. It means thinking about the incentives and values and perspectives each one of your role characters has, each one of your roles has. Um, and thinking about how to create an experience for players where they have the freedom um, to act differently than they did in the past, but they have incentives to move forward in roughly the same way. Uh, so it's a very different experience. It's um, I would say it's much more creative nonfiction than it is academic writing. Um, but it it does require you to deeply immerse yourself in the subject and and in the people you're writing about.
0: Mm -hmm. It sounds fascinating and very challenging to Mm. me. So in other words, and now we're kind of getting into the mechanics of the games themselves. When you design a character playing a Mm -hmm. role, you have to uh, sensitively describe their goals and the constraints that they meet resources that they have or don't in order to achieve those goals is that right
1: yeah so this is where so 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 many people listening to this will have had experiences with simulations Yeah. and there's lots of different de- definitions of simulations and, and, and i don't want to go into them here here i'll just say simulations tend to abstract the reacting to the past games instead believes in the virtues of particularity it, it wants so you write the roles in a way that will help students immerse themselves in that role and in that time period uh, and some of that is mechanical uh, as you say thinking about um, the goals they had and what knowledge they would have and what knowledge they would not have but some of it is biographical, right? If, you, if students are really going to immerse themselves in that person at that time, they have to, they have to empathize with that person. And your writing is meant to help all of your, the students who will play it empathize with the people in the past and what they were seeing and feeling and fearing.
0: Yeah, I imagine that's very difficult to do because in a sense you have to do a kind of caricature, Logical. Sorry, I didn't get that mm-hmm. word outright. Character. <laughs> what, how do you say that word? I don't know. You have to understand their personality. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's <laughs> in some sense writing twenty or thirty mini biographies.
0: Yeah, you have to understand the personality, where they came from, what kind of habits they have. You know, whether they run hot or cold, or you know, mm-hmm. this, this sort of thing. Um, if they're sick or well, yeah, that kind of thing. And you can see that this is a really incredible task i mean it's the task of the biographer but you, you don't have time to do that in class so essentially mm-hmm. you have to, you have to sketch in order to give the students uh, an idea of the way that they should act consistent with the character mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. in that way it's a little bit like method acting yeah. yes <laughs> <Here>.
1: <laughs> and it very much is i mean i could give these mini biographies in a lecture that's perfectly possible yeah um But students will engage with them more when it is their peers interacting with them as somebody else than they will simply. And, and, you know, I do a lot of recruiting. We talked about this earlier. As I've said, one of my taglines in recruiting is college is expensive and YouTube is free. Uh, You ought to get more from college than just somebody giving you information because you can get that for free.
0: Yeah, yeah. and, And now we're kind of, again, Uh, a lot of random questions are occurring to me. Are there, um, are there, well, let's first start to talk about the students. Um, do students Mm -hmm. react well to this? Do they, do they enjoy doing it? Are there some that are a little bit uh, hesitant to try it or how exactly does it work in the classroom when you select students to play particular roles?
1: So many students are apprehensive at first. Uh, this is not what they're used to. Um, although that varies from school to school, but, um, Many people are apprehensive uh, about what they see as something that's more demanding because of course you can't just slouch I mean, I suppose you can slouch in a seat, but it won't you won't be effective doing that. You actually have to participate um, And many students, as you know, uh, are nervous about speaking in public, whether that's a set piece speech or just uh, interacting with their peers. Um, my experience. And I should say, uh, as I said, this was developed at Barnard. Uh, it initially took root in relatively elite private schools. It has since spread across to all for, uh, all varieties of American public education, community colleges, regional state uh, branch schools, uh, small private non-elite schools. My experience is that 80% of students love it. Uh, 10 to 15% percent of students tolerate it and 5% of students hate it. Um, which is much better than I will get in a lecture on. <laughs> I
0: was about to say the same thing. <laughs> and it's not even in a lecture that you could ever know because they just yeah, sit there. Kind exactly. Of mute, like, Oh, mm-hmm. this is going on again. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can certainly understand that. So, uh, let's leave aside questions about what you do with problematic students in this context, mm-hmm. because I imagine we get very deep into the weeds yeah. there. But what does it require from the instructor?
1: Yeah, it's a different, well, let me start with a story. I was, um, uh, I was division chair of humanities for quite a while here at Newman and I was at a, a presentation to incoming students and I talked a little bit about this and about how I um, sat in the corner and watched students play and, and the dean of the business school kind of looked and, and laughed dryly and said, "So what you're saying is that you're we are paying you for not working." <laughs>
0: um,
1: that is not actually right. Um, no. No. It is yeah. it is a different kind of work. Um, you do so. I would say a couple things. One of which is you talk to students far more often when you're. Um, uh, the the colloquialism is is running a game when you run a game in a class you will see far more students in your office hours, um, in your text stream if you give out your te- your phone number to people in your email box, uh, you will see far more students than you will in a lecture class. Um, you will see them because um, a little bit because it's an unfamiliar environment and they need. Uh, advice and assistance, but mostly because they're much more engaged in the material and they want to win and they want your advice about what they should do. Um, so from a a, a time perspective, uh, you don't, I don't know, quote unquote, work real hard in the 50 minutes you're in the classroom, although even that's not completely true. But it is a lot of time spent engaging with students. I think that's a good thing. Not everybody does, but I, I, it's one of the most rewarding parts of teaching the games for me is getting to know students better and helping them one-on-one. Um, it, and It utilizes skills that graduate schools rarely teach. Now, I know graduate school has changed since I was in graduate school. When I was there, we got a ton of information about content and we got a lot of information about how to do research. And we got a lot of mentoring about how to become professional. We got very little teaching about how to teach. And so being an instructor in a games class, um, uh, in that environment, you use interpersonal communication skills. And you use the skills uh, uh, helping to mentor people through um Uh, experiences that are different for them. You use those far more than you would in a lecture classroom. Um, I think students get far more out of that, but it is a different set of um, expectations or demands on you as an instructor. Uh, The third thing I would say is, as an instructor, uh, the the supporting materials that come along with the game walk you through the experience. Uh, And so that actually running the game is less demanding than the time and the skills necessary to help students succeed.
0: So after a moment, the game kind of runs itself. The students are in charge of it. You moderate or what's the right word for it?
1: So you moderate is probably the right word. You will be called upon to intervene at times. Right. Contingency is part of history. These are games in which um, sometimes you roll dice, not as often as you would in Avalon Hill games, but sometimes you roll dice to see if the riot by the crowd actually uh, kills some of the delegates to the National Assembly, or to see whether the invasion succeeds, or uh, whatever mechanism of contingency is important for that game. Uh, And so you'll do that. Part of your job is to make sure. That um, people are following the rules and know the rules, part of your job is to help student in the classroom is to help students who feel unsure. So uh, I actually text students while they're in class while I'm watching. I will text them and encourage them uh, just kind of prompt them and say, "You know your character really doesn't agree with that. I've talked to you in my office. I know that you know this. This is a good time to raise this point." Um, and so part of your job is cheerleader in the classroom. Um,
0: I do want to ask about a couple of things. Mm-hmm. One is uh, your particular contribution to reacting to the past. Mm. is called the needs of others, human rights, international organizations, and uh, intervention in Rwanda, 1994. Uh, people are very sensitive these days. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, and uh and you know trigger warnings and such it, it, it strikes me that you're going to be asking students at least you might be asking students uh, to it, you might be putting them in situations or presenting them with stuff which uh i hesitate to use the word traumatized but it, it might um i don't know what the right word is it might put them mm-hmm. in a funk or something uh as they're been any pushback from students about this or from administrators or is it an actual danger or is it just something I'm making up being overly cautious myself?
1: I think there's reason to be cautious. Um, So let me so, so again, maybe maybe I'll start with a story and then kind of move on from that. So um, I was walking into my classroom one day And a young man who uh, was playing the Rwanda game, uh, needs of others, stopped me as I was walking in. And he said to me, uh, well, I can't, I I, I need your help making a decision. And I smiled my happiest, best smile and said, well, what is it? And he said, well, my girlfriend, and his girlfriend was on the other side of the debate. Uh, My girlfriend was in my room last night and she was writing her paper. And she went to the bathroom and I read her paper. And I know what secrets she knows. Should I use this? And I looked at him and I said, You know, I can't answer that. And and he looked kind of abashed and he walked into the classroom. And um, about 20 minutes later, his girlfriend stands up and starts to make a point, which I knew was not true, and which I now know that he knew was not true because he had snooped in his girlfriend's paper. Uh, And he looks over again at me. And I just smile at him and I don't say anything. So he stands up and he starts to make his point. And in the middle of that, um, his girlfriend looks at him and I can see on her face that she realizes what he has done. And before I can do anything, she says, you asshole. (laughs) And he's, she storms out of the room and she, and the guy looks over at me and I'm like, you know, this is your girlfriend. You do not want advice from me about how to solve this problem. That is a way of saying that one of the beautiful parts of reacting is that students become emotionally engaged in the game that they are playing. Now, this doesn't happen right. We don't have those kind of crises every day. Um, but students do become emotionally invested in their characters, in their victory, in their relationships with other people. And they become emotionally invested in the, the, the issues that are being addressed. Um, that means a lot of things. Uh, one of the things I always say before a game starts is that you have to remember as you play the game that you are playing this as characters. And if you are a member of the crowd in the French Revolution and you are yelling at Lafayette and calling him scum, and Lafayette happens to be your roommate, you're not (laughs) calling your roommate scum.
0: You're calling Lafayette
1: scum. And every game ends with a debriefing period in which you cast those roles aside and revisit what happened and use that as an opportunity to understand why history unfolded as it did rather than in the game, but also to, to make sure that everybody understands that, that we're out of that liminal space and we're back to a world in which you can trust your roommate and be friends with your roommate and you don't have to hide that paper on your computer. So that's the broad answer. The more specific answer is there are clearly some games and some roles which are more emotionally demanding than others. Different instructors uh, treat this differently in, the, in in my game, the needs of others. In particular, uh, I doubt there are any students listening out here. Um, the role of the French ambassador is very emotionally challenging. Uh, the role of the French ambassador is basically um to stall and to make sure that intervention doesn't happen. Now I know that's a that's a, we can go into the nuances of that because stated that bluntly it's not quite historically accurate, but broadly speaking I think that's a reasonable interpretation of history. And so the French ambassador has to has to try and persuade people that this is not gen- so 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 we haven't actually set this up, right? This this is a game that is set in the uh security council of the united nations in in april and may of 1994 and students are asked to respond to uh, reports of increasing violence in rwanda Uh, and they are asked to do so with uh, widely varying amounts of information Uh, the people who play for instance the ambassadors for new zealand or nigeria who are kind of instinctively inclined to intervene don't have the kind of information necessary to make a persuasive argument The French ambassador has lots of information, um, but doesn't really want other people to have it because it would undercut his argument. Uh, And so I've had students cry on occasion, not often, but occasionally. uh, And I've certainly had students look at me and say, boy, that was hard to play. Individual instructors handle that differently. Uh, some hand, uh, administer a survey before the game to try and get a feel for what students' backgrounds are and what students can what roles and kinds of roles students can inhabit well. Other student, other people do it randomly. But in every case, uh, there should be instructions or guidance in the instructor's manual about these are the roles which may be emotionally challenging. It's probably worth checking in with these students occasionally and making sure they're handling it appropriately.
0: How do you assign the roles to the students? Or do they pick?
1: They do not. Different instructors do it differently. I do not allow them to pick.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, why. Because,
1: (laughs) I mean, I have kids. I know how this works. Yeah, we Um, do. (laughs) What I do, I actually do administer a survey because some roles – I will ask students what what you know if, are you an athlete if you're an athlete what part of the semester will you be out of town I ask students right. uh do you have particular talents whether that's graphic design or singing or uh whatever it might be that might help you play a role embody a role well are there do you prefer to be in a leadership position or do you prefer to be part of a group you know those kind of things uh and then I try and within reason to match students um Perceive talent and comfort with the demands of the role. But I will say I don't I don't promise students that and sometimes I will go against that because what's most important to me out of this is that students get a broader understanding of that particular part of the past that we're engaging and they think through what that time means for us today. So for the needs of others, for instance, I really want them to think about this question of what, on a a personal level, of what rights and responsibilities we have toward people who are in danger, uh, and how the, the structures and institutions we've created to help our world run, how those structures and institutions impact decisions about our own ethical and moral responsibility.
0: So this leads kind of naturally to a question you did mention this just a second ago. Uh, How does one do assessment in a context (laughs) like this? I mean, you know, the standard lecture, two tests and a 15 page paper that that doesn't seem like it applies here. So how do you do it? So.
1: So every student, every game requires students to write. Uh, The form of that writing or the genre of that writing depends on the game, but every student is expected to write um, and to write from a particular background and voice. Uh, And so from a writing perspective, uh, every game can be uh, integrated into an assessment plan. Um, Every game requires people to speak and both in writing and in speaking, they are required to do so from the perspective and with the knowledge base of that particular Character that they are playing, um, and so uh, that's also a, a way to integrate this into assessment. Um, to some extent, right? So, so people use these games differently depending on their own uh, goals for their program and their class and their institution, and. To some extent, assessment relates to how you choose to use games in the class. Some people choose to use one game in a semester as a way of particularly emphasizing one particular moment of time or one particular issue. Other people choose to use two or three games in a semester and abandon uh, lecturing entirely uh, and to focus on um themes across history or developing skills in thinking about history rather than uh, the kind of essay or multiple choice question you might get uh, in a traditional lecture class. Um, But all of these can be assessed and all of these can be used to, or maybe I should say, every instructor should use these games in ways that make sense for their own course objectives and for the objectives they have for their institution. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So is there a standard timeline for the and standard, I mean that in a very loose sense, or <laughs> a typical timeline for the use of these games? So for instance, if I were teaching one on the Russian Revolution, I might lecture for a few weeks on the Russian Revolution and then I'd say, okay, now we're gonna play a game, and that will last how many weeks? So
1: games take different amounts of time. Uh they take I think broadly speaking, they off, You instructors often spend a week or so talking about the materials, the historical background. And, and we haven't talked much about this. Every game book uh, has a, a historical background essay that's 20, 30, 40 pages long. Every game includes a variety of primary documents that students read before they start the game. That may be a book. Uh, Uh, The Athens game, for instance, asks you to read The Republic uh, or at least significant parts of The Republic. It might simply be a variety of excerpted documents. So the needs of others uh, contain speeches and intelligence assessments and a variety of things like that. But you spend a week or so introducing the game. That is to make students familiar with it, not to make them know it perfectly. They will be teaching each other as they play the game. And then the game might take two or three weeks to play. A few games take longer, but not very many. And then you'll do a day or two or three of debrief. So, so basically four to five weeks uh, is pretty typical for a full-length game. People use them differently. I, so I teach a class on comparative genocide. Um, most of my uh, students and colleagues uh, wonder about my sanity, but I teach a class on comparative genocide. And I start with the Rwanda game. Because one of the critical questions in the Rwanda game is, is what's happening genocide? And so I want to start asking them to really interrogate that definition. How do we know what is what genocide is? And how do we know when it's happening? And how, what kind of evidence would we need to persuade us in real life that what's going on is, is genocide as opposed to, I don't know, typical violence? Um I also do it at the beginning because once you have established a classroom culture of participation, that doesn't go away. Um, you may return to more traditional ways of teaching, but students are much more likely to ask questions and have discussions and make their opinion known or 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 to follow you down a trail once you've established a a classroom culture in which you encourage student uh, And that's not right. You always encourage student participation, but students grow to value their own participation in the class. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can do it at any point. Some people some people end the class with that because they want to end emphasizing a particular theme.
0: So I have a couple more questions and then we'll let you go. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, One of them I was reading uh, some economics this morning. For my mm. sins, and uh, <laughs> a lot <laughs> and, of us have been reading economics yeah, over read the last two weeks. This I Some serious economics this morning, uh-huh. and, uh, and and economists they tend to be cynical kinds of people, the dismal science and all. And mm. a cynic would say, not a cynic exactly, but at least a skeptic would say, "All right, great. Is there any evidence that this produces better results than lecturing or something else?"
1: So there is there are two kinds of evidence. First of all there there's a broad set of of uh a broad number of studies which look broadly at the difference between participatory classes and lecture classes and I think while there are some caveats to this I think the broad conclusion is that students learn more effectively when they are engaged and participating than they do from lecture. Um there are studies specifically about reacting. This is relatively new um but there are um, several studies which um, show that reacting works uh, and um, and that students like it. Um,
0: well, it certainly is, let me just say, it certainly is intuitive to say mm-hmm. uh, it's really good to learn by doing. I mean, like, it, it, there's simply no question that if you do something, you're, you're going to have a different kind of knowledge of it than you are if you mm-hmm. uh, learn about the theory of it. You know, like, I can't imagine, I always give the example of like, riding a bicycle. Like if you gave somebody a manual on riding the bicycle, say, hey, here's how you do it. Like they'd never ride a bicycle, yeah. but you have to show them. And then they start to ride the bicycle. and like, okay, they can ride a bicycle. It's yeah. just a very different kind of, uh, it's a different kind of learning task um, because they're doing it. And, and that's very important. So it is intuitive that they would, uh, I don't know if learn more or learn different. I don't, think, I don't know if these things can be quantified, but or I apologized. but it, it does, it is intuitive that it would, it would it would be effective in many ways. Mm-hmm. So my second question before I let you go is this. Um, are there reacting to the pasts or something like it, role playing like gamifications that would apply, or do these apply to other social scientific disciplines that I'm thinking anthropology and sociology and political science and mm-hmm. things like that? Is there any are there people in those disciplines involved?
1: Yes. So Uh, I will start out by saying that even though I am a historian, I've been surprised to find out uh, that this this particular game is played more often in philosophy and political science, international relations classes than it is in history classes. Um, And so there are a number of these games that, while written by historians, uh, uh, apply to other disciplines. But even more broadly than that, there there are scholars from across academia working in these. There are people who have worked in STEM fields. There are games... Uh, asking students to uh, debate the cause of disease in a cholera outbreak in London, there are games about um, climate change and the debate about climate change. There are uh, games um, uh, about uh, evolution and how evolution has been implanted. There are political scientists who do this uh, there's a just a, a, an example there's a Watergate game that is in the process of working its way through the system. Um, There are not as many games that are not historical as maybe I would like. And if there are economists or anthropologists or other disciplines out there who would be eager to write a game, I I hope that you do that because we need games for those specific disciplines. Um, But but even with the games we have now, uh, they're used uh, in classrooms across the academic spectrum. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, Kelly, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. As you know, we have, a, at least I do, the way I do the interviews. Mm-hmm. We have lots of people that do the interviews, and they do them differently. I always ask one question at the end. It's the traditional final question, and that is, other than sequestering yourself and recruiting <laughs> students, uh, what are you up to now in terms of research?
1: Well, my research is largely through reacting. Um, and so I've got a number of games uh, on the process Uh, uh, Moving its way through the system. But what I'm doing right now is starting a new reacting game focusing on the Franco Algerian conflict in the 50s and early 1960s. Uh, And it asks students to think about issues of decolonization and colonization. It asks students to think about questions about what kinds of violence are appropriate and are there kinds of violence that are never appropriate. Uh, And it asks students to think about the a basic question There's how do wars end? We spend a lot of time talking about how wars start. We don't talk nearly as much about how wars end. Um, so I am deeply, enmesh, uh, am, am, am deeply enmeshed in the history of Algeria and of France and of uh, I am looking forward in a week or two to writing the role of Charles de Gaulle, which if there's not a dream thing for historians to write about, that's got to be it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I've always reminded about Charles de Gaulle. His name was de Gaulle.
1: Because like, mm. I'm
0: like, what is that? Yep. <laughs> Mr. Gaulle. His name was of Gaulle. That, that's just whack. <laughs> I don't even know what to say <laughs> about that. That's like, it's a it's like two-story book. It's just bizarre. So anyway, Kelly, thank you so much for being on the show today. By the way, when you research uh, France, we have a lot of interviews and in New Books in History and New Indeed. Books in French Studies that involve precisely Algerian-French relations, so you can go listen to those and I encourage everybody listening to this podcast to go listen to them too. So let me say thank you very much for being on the show and I have I hope you have a great rest of your day.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me Marshall.